0: Welcome to the SLU Podcast, where capital and innovation meet the Permian Basin. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell, SVP of the Americas for and Gas Council and advisor to the SLU Enterprise. Today we are joined by Eric Unverzad, Director of Land Matters at the SLU Enterprise. During the episode, Eric discusses the land-related aspects of the SLU marketplace from both the working interest and minerals owner's perspective. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Eric has to say. Eric, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the time to do this. How are you?
1: Good, good. How about yourself?
0: I'm excellent. Uh, looking forward to, to jumping in here. You know, we, we're doing episodes with all the different SLU members, and everyone brings a, a unique skill set and a unique background to the table. You're, um, you're the land guy, right? So before we yes. jump into your background and your career that has very much a land bent to it, a little background on yourself, where you grew up, and you know, were you in an oil and gas family, entrepreneurial family, finance family, land family? Uh, I'll let you take it away.
1: Uh, yeah, so born in Midland, moved to Houston as quick as we could. We uh, grew up on the north side of Houston. Uh, my father was in oil and gas. He did pipeline engineering, and business development uh, for a number of companies and uh, kind of grew up watching the industry through his eyes over his shoulder. And uh, when I graduated college, I I thought there's uh, no better calling than oil and
0: gas. Yeah, so definitely, I mean, the the question, I, I should have started with where did you grow up and then you said Midland, I mean, the rest is history, right? I mean, what are the odds of going outside of oil and gas being born in Midland? Exactly, yeah. So now you graduate and you get into the industry. Your first job was with Dale, correct? So if you're going yeah. you hang your hat on a land pedigree, there's no better place to start than Dale out of Dallas, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, Dale Resources was great. We had a huge team there, tons of good landmen, tons of good attorneys. I very quickly distinguished myself, taking a lot of leases uh, very rapidly. We were doing the you know, knock on the door, uh, hide-you-own-property-type leasing, and uh, I you know, applied some finance to that and started looking at how to lease people faster. And So uh, they cornered me quickly and said, why are you taking more leases than the rest? And I said, because I'm going after all the people that own more than one lot. And they're like, well, how the heck do you figure that out? <laughs> so uh, it was okay. early in the kind of race, and so it was a great place to get in, uh, learn about leasing, uh, learn about you know, basic oil and gas kind of as a lease hound. You only get so much exposure, but it was really a great place to start.
0: And then you transition on to Denbury, and I think the experience at Denbury parlayed very nicely into you being hired at Scandia, given they're both focused on mature fields and, and workovers and conventional, right? So that was 2009, you joined Denver and you had told me in a, in a conversation offline that you had met some mentors there on the land side that really helped foster your career and give you all sorts of different tools on the tool belt. Let's walk through that and how your career kind of evolved from that point and then how you got in with the Scandia later in the...
1: Sure. The- um, so I, I started at Denver and uh, was immediately matched with a mentor, which is a fabulous thing. He was 75 years old. He ran three, four miles a day, and he just uh, took me beside him and all the interesting meetings and stuff going on, and I did all the research and basically did a lot of the back office as I started moving towards the front office of negotiations, meeting with uh, different bodies and different groups, everything from river commissioners to governors and senators, uh, came through our offices and all the things that are required uh, as you develop massive oil fields, uh, I got exposure to in this very interesting way where uh, I was the longest running team member in most of the teams that I was on uh, at Denbury, and really had a lot of the, um, what had happened history uh, behind me going into those situations. And so although uh, not always the lead manager on each team always looked to, to provide that reference of, what can we do, uh, how can we do it, and then getting to go and dive into the research of how things progress as far as uh, deploying billions and billions of dollars, tertiary oil recovery operations. And it really flew nicely because it went from being a green operator who is focused on reducing carbon emissions, carbon capture, they just released some statements about that uh, here this week, to a company, uh, Iscandia, that was also focused on uh, being environmentally friendly and had a charge to really take that to the next level. And so it flowed nicely uh, in my experience, both doing things the right way, and then also you know, providing that experience to Scandia, where uh, developing larger projects, how to uh, work in the complex arena that is development.
0: Yeah, and, and so you are you joined Scandia in 2017, and you know, the, just as a background for everyone listening, so Scandia Energy operating, they raise money through a separate entity called T.O.P.L.C. from European pension money, and then the Scandia Energy operating company is is more the operations vehicle that manages the assets on behalf of T.O.P.L.C. The the core focus of uh, the operating company was to use an I.P. on a basket of E.O.R. technologies, and then find old fields in the Permian and and bring the production up turned shut in wells online and and you were out scouting opportunities to to kind of basically take those assets off of the, the balance sheet for companies, and in many cases, a liability for companies, right? And yeah. talk to me about the the deal with Noble Energy and the dynamics of that, and, and then kind of that really birthing the S O U concept on the back of it, because yourself, Michael, Stefan, Mark, from different perspectives, saw opportunity and When your minds joined together you said there's something that's missing here there's an inefficiency in the market we have an idea to to solve that so why don't you take it from your perspective identifying the opportunity executing it with noble and then what what was born after that
1: sure so uh noble was going through and uh, rationalizing their acreage in ward county and they eventually sold their unconventional acreage to Callen and did a couple of deals with Exxon. But throughout the whole process, a list of wells uh, became evident that we're not holding acreage that Noble could control, uh, or we're just in a way not attractive for Noble to continue operating uh, because they're high overhead and everything that large companies push down uh, onto the GNA of each well. So this list of 80ish wells emerged. This Mixed bag of wells with uh, differing opportunities at each, Uh, but it was holding acreage for uh, Exxon, uh, Calen, a number of other players and Noble felt the obligation and in some cases actually did have an obligation to hold this acreage together until head wells could be drilled. And so as I uh, worked with my Noble colleagues, they looked at what Scandi was doing. They saw our good track record. They were interested in the technologies that we were using and uh, they sought to make a partnership between Standia and Noble and transact on uh, these wells. So we ended up holding acreage for them in in kind to pay for the properties in a way that we we transacted on. And we're able to hold that acreage and improve those wells. And we took the production from, I think, 40 barrels a day when we took it over, uh, up over 120 now. So we you know, did apply our technologies. And- our prowess in operating uh, and have rejuvenated these uh, long life assets that we see uh, much differently than the unconventional operators.
0: Yeah. And so, so that transaction, you basically got it for free and and you went on to kind of replicate that with other operators, correct? Around the Permian. And I remember the early days drop deep rights, acreage pooling was a concept. You said, okay, we seem to have a little niche here. Let's raise a fund around this and, we can basically be the HBP partner of all the major Permian operators, right? And then that was that kind of opened the door for what ultimately has become uh, the SLU enterprise. So, why don't you talk about some of the other things you've done and the other relationships with the the, op, the other operators, and then how that idea kind of manifested itself? And we can kind of transition to that dinner at Mastro's with with you and Michael and um, and Stefan, right? And and how you really start to hash out what is today the SLU?
1: Yeah, so uh, we approached all of the operators that we hold deep rights for, and said, "Hey, you know, we, we're holding these deep rights. We realize that maybe you're not developing them today. We'd like to continue holding these deep rights, but also add on our portfolio the kind of delinquent wells that you see around the Permian that don't really get the funding or the attention uh, that we think they deserve." So. We talked to a number of other people throughout that process and uh, there was a mixed bag of uh, different feelings about having someone else kind of hold control over acreage that you eventually want to drill. But as those conversations were happening, it became very evident that people were not picking up on the optionality of developing acreage now versus the ability to develop it later uh, that we saw. and so. It's not that we've abandoned that business line, but we've switched to focus onto the SLU, which came about uh, at a dinner where you put a successful CEO, uh, a very successful trader, and a landman in a room and uh, start talking about the, the ins and outs of the industry and how, because of the ability for operators to drill very predictable return wells in Delaware, uh, and effectively, like storing oil, but uh, in the ground. So, Michael went on to say, You know, I'd love to be on to trade with options. I'd love to be able to do this, and do that. Uh, let's start talking through what are the mechanics that are preventing. Um, and as a landman, it, you know, it's a short list. It's uh, it's this JOA. You've got to have something that people know what they're showing up to play in. And you can't have varying JOAs. Traders don't want unexpected capital calls, they also don't want unknown interest. So, when they show up and look at a section, they want to understand what they own. Uh, so that takes the idea of non consent side of saying, we want all the owners to own all the same in all of this group of wells, all this well. And so we start working through it at dinner and the months after that, and it just, it comes together in a way where Michael sees that traders want to trade this. The oil industry realizes that they need uh, a diversity of capital and market players on the investment side, and then you have all these operators that are sitting on all this inventory that's not on the balance sheet. I've gone around and around with different operators saying, show me this twenty thirty uh, production on your balance sheet. For the most part, it's just really not there. And you're not giving credit for all this great inventory that they have built. And so we went into it and really revolutionized the way that uh, you can look at your inventory on a longer term scale. And then put a price on it because of Michael's uh, willingness to trade it. Once something's in the market, it's
0: uh, no value. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when we spoke, you you said the traditional methods for reserve evaluation, when you get beyond five years, especially in today's markets, uh, and if you're publicly traded on Wall Street, you're just really getting no value for this land. But it has inherent value at some level. And so the SLU will enable you to have that option value in the future, and by enabling, uh, you know, it, creating a marketplace where it can be traded, there's incentives for brokers and and traders to go you know, short, go short and long, and and make money off of it um, with arbitrage opportunities, and it, it's just a way to to unlock capital and create liquidity for something in today's normal standards um, is basically stuck, right? So. I think it's really interesting. It's really innovative. Specifically from your perspective, what I'd love to do is get into the weeds a little bit on the land side. So in the other episodes, we get into structure, we get into the trading aspect, how you know the different types of investors will enter the SLU marketplace and what their appetite is and what their preferences are. On the land side, so when you speak to an EMP company about joining the SLU marketplace and contributing SLUs, I'm sure they have all sorts of questions about what happens to our existing uh, agreements and what does this mean from a land perspective? And can you get into the details on that and the conversations you've had and, and just spelling that out? Because we're going to have lots of, of fellow landmen and operators and CEOs of E&P companies in the Permian listening to this. So let's get in their shoes and let's kind of hold their hand along all the way, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So, uh, for the first part, to the landmen listening, you'll be very glad to know that this does not replace land work. Uh, We don't have some magic fix to uh, reading these long, laborious documents. Legally, and it's complex to set these things up. And there's plenty of work both in uh, setting them up and maintaining them for uh, landmen. You know, just kind of diving down into the weeds of what landmen typically ask, and uh, you can quickly come up with a common a a common theme that Uh, If it's done like that now, we've done our best to keep it the same. So, uh, you know, there's still JOAs. It looks a little different, yes, but uh, it's still what we call our standardized JOA, which means every JOA you show up to is going to read the exact same way. There's still, you know, all of the different steps you see along the path to develop wells. There's still title opinions rendered. There's still title ran. There's still... Uh, division of orders for royalty interest owners, there's still the need to disclose your AFEs. There's still 99% of what makes landmen and oil companies tick still goes on through SLU, SLU environment overall. So the the key things that I tell people to we pick up on is for the operators out there, your non-ops will no longer have the ability to not say For the investors, you know what your development plan is from the operator. So if you're mineral owner underneath an SLU, you now have a peek into what the uh, development plan will look like and when those wells are going to be drilled and even uh, depending on your level of sophistication, what kind of returns those wells are expected to generate. So there is some difference here uh, just because of standardization, but really overall it's a lot of cookie cutter of what we do today.
0: So I, I have a question and, and this was brought up in some other some of the other episodes we've done. So. The SLU itself will have a development plan in place. And so when an investor buys a unit in an SLU, they they have expectations on time horizon and development plans and everything. Just help me wrap my head around that. So if an operator says, we intend to drill this in 2027, mm-hmm. that's seven years from now. Commodity prices will be different. Technology will be different. Global markets will be different. Are these conditional Development plans—is there—is there the ability to adjust them over time, or how, how does that framework work?
1: Of course, there's going to need to be adjustments because you're going to get different well spacing, uh, you're going to have commodity prices, uh, you're going to have technology—all these things are going to vary. But what we're attempting to do is, when a, a trader buys into a development plan, they have an expectation of around about how much oil to expect in seven years from now. And so we we want to put a framework in place that allows that investor to receive those uh, barrels, while also giving the operators the ability to keep up with technology, to implement better practices, to do all the things that you would expect an operator to do over a seven-year lifespan of oil and gas. And the idea There's too,
0: right, with with the marketplace is you're creating liquidity, and so if if things evolve or rapidly change in a direction that is is different from when the investor or the trader originally got into the SLU, they'll be able to exit, right? And that's exactly that's the yeah. idea. So okay.
1: instead of non-consenting, what you see is exiting. So you have people that like development plans and something uh, in the area changes or some reason they don't want to be there anymore, or a private equity fund term runs out, they can start selling down. So you, you run into a situation where it's a market-driven ebb and flow of how these developments are going to happen. So. People aren't stuck. They uh, can get into liquidity events where the SOU council and the rules set out there. It's a lot like margin calls where if you can't come up with funds, you're going to have to either exit in some forced kind of way or um, take some sort of penalty uh, that's already built into the system. But uh, the system, you don't ever really know how people are going to use this. Uh, we've put a framework in place that's broad enough where people come to me all the time with, things that I never thought of, like the the strategic oil reserve. Currently, we store it in giant salt caverns, but in the future, there's possibility that the government decides to buy SOUs instead. And so you start to get into all these areas that are not how you originally thought to design it, but hopefully in our designing of it, we were uh, thoughtful enough that we provided an environment where everyone's coming at this from their own angle, and everyone can get what they're expecting
0: out of it. Yeah, that that's what Joe Choirs went into detail on in his episode. He he just said, listen, this is something that'll benefit everybody. You could be in growth mode, you can be in harvest mode. It, you could have all sorts of different structures as a company, but being a part of this collectively is is, you know, part of the the entire Permian EMP space is is a net benefit, regardless of how you look at it. So, you know, on the back of your comments there. You set up the framework and you let the companies freely operate within it, um, good things will happen, right? Because innovation will take over.
1: Especially for the, these companies that are the early joiners, they're getting a real opportunity here to come in and shape the world that they hopefully live in for years to come. So uh, it's really important to stay in tune and stay involved in this if you see the merit and if you, you know, are looking for alternative capital sources, which I know a lot of EMP companies currently are.
0: So so another question, and I imagine this is something that you work very closely w- with Joe and Adam on. So you go and you meet with an EMP operator in the Permian, and you're speaking with them about the concept, and they say, okay, this is interesting, we might want to participate. Then what's the next step? You know, what is an SLU? Can you get into the, the weeds on that from a land perspective? I mean, if if I'm a company and I own 50,000 acres in the Delaware Basin, well, how do you now translate, how many SLUs is that? Can, can you just explain all that and yeah. identifying them in your portfolio, right?
1: Yeah. So uh, generally what happens and what's happened with most is we've taken a couple of sections and started walking through people, uh, their own inventory of what SLU would look like in a small subset of their acreage. Uh, so basically what an SLU is, is it's two conjoined sections capable of supporting 10,000 foot laterals across with 750, but you know, for the lander in the room, 10,000 foot long laterals is what we're looking for, and you know, kind of a, a squareness to the situation. So, if you have a bunch of river sections, you're probably not going to make the, the most appealing and cons- consistent SLUs. It's not impossible, it's still definitely possible in the framework, uh, but they're not uh, what we call the standard SLU. So, uh, what happens is those two sections are then rated by Ryder Scott, or a development plan is put in place, and then rated by Ryder Scott so that uh, we then start to figure out how much reserves is under the location. That number is published, and those are the number of SLUs we have. So if you have 10 SLUs, you can then start trading them or doing one of the other functions that uh, you could do as an SLU holder. But the idea is that having a synthetic marker put in place by Ryder Scott gives people the ability to trade a somewhat known volume or somewhat known uh, denominator, I guess, between different sections. So if you're trying to affect uh, acreage swap, uh, and Ryder Scott says, you know, 10% of this section is worth one SLU, and you go over there and they say 10% of this section is worth two SLUs, uh, you can suddenly, very quickly, see uh, how acreage should compare. Of course, all this uh, gets modeled by the market because the market might say that those two SOUs are exactly the same as that one SM. And then you're in for some tricky math that effectively, you know what acreage should be tricky.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the one thing, right, is uh, acreage valuations and multiples that get reverse engineered out of corporate deals and A&D transactions. It's always a little fuzzy, right? If you're doing it down to the unit here, it should be a little bit more transparent for sure.
1: It's a lot more transparent. It's still a little fuzzy because you're dealing with the uh, A market, markets change and move over time, Uh, liquidity and non-liquidity, and there's a lot of things that affect it. But overall, there's much more transparency into how things should be done. So So, your your question was, I guess, how to walk through from an EMP asking uh, how it looks like in my inventory all the way to development. We have a, a great presentation that goes through it, but the easy steps are you decide that you want to move this acreage into it. You look at the legal st- uh, framework of how to move that acreage into SLU. You get it rated by writer Scott, uh, you implement your legal framework, and then you are then able to issue SLUs and start the opportunities that present themselves.
0: So uh, Another question, and I do a lot in the minerals royalty space personally, how does this affect mineral owners, whether that's landowners and individuals or institutions that have acquired minerals over time in the Delaware and the Midland Basin? If, if I now own minerals that get contributed into an SLU, what does that all mean?
1: You can decide to be a part of the SLU. Uh, we invite you in to participate as our, on our ledger, uh, which gives you the ability to uh, see a value for your minerals, uh, look at the development plan. See everything that the other working interested partners are able to see, uh, but it also allows you to see the timing of when those uh, future cash flows are going to come. And as a, and, you know, you're kind of in a unique situation in this uh, ecosystem we put in place that's largely centered around the working interest owners. You get all the benefits of the you know, oil and gas industry organizing itself and standardizing itself, but you don't have any of the complexities of capital calls or uh, participation and you still get the ability to market your shares and see how many units you have because just like a work interest owner they will have slu's associated with them the total slu's include operating non op work interest overrides royalty
0: yeah listen if if you're a royalties owner and you get access to the development plans that completely changes the whole dynamics of minerals buying right because mm-hmm. all the perks of having no cost exposure and owning the real asset into perpetuity uh, are great but the trade-off is you don't have any insight on development or controlled development if you have insight that'll really recalibrate how companies aggregate minerals that it's going to be the first movers on that are going to benefit massively who understand the sou market and then i think efficiency will follow And that arbitrage window will close, but that's really powerful. Now, one thing I want to follow up on on that is you said mineral owners have the option to participate. So what if they don't? What does that mean?
1: They receive their royalty just like they do today from the, what we're calling the prime, which is the operator.
0: Gotcha. And is there any additional, so if they opt in, I mean, I don't know if this is a stupid question, but why wouldn't they opt in? Uh, Is there any downside?
1: No, not that I've found yet. You know, I don't sit in their shoes on the daily, but I think for the most part, they would wanna opt in and get the efficiencies that they'll see in the market by knowing all this information.
0: Okay, and very, very, very interesting stuff. I think there's layers and layers of this, right? As you talk about it more and as you know, everyone gets to listen to the different episodes of all the different members on the SLU team, you can see all the, the upside potential and the different directions you can go with this, right? It's just like you said; your your team is setting the framework, and there, there's going to be all sorts of opportunities that you didn't originally think of that become possible. So it's it's Absolutely. it's fantastic. But listen, Eric, this is this has been great, very very different conversation from the other episodes, and I, so I know this is going to be very helpful, especially to the ops and land people out there listening. Any closing comments, message to your peers? Uh, in land teams to operating teams and EMP teams at large, and then the investment community? I'll let you take it away.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think we're in a very pivotal time in the industry where a lot of things are changing. This is one potential change that I think we've engineered in a way that is different than uh, some of the other less positive changes. We're trying to invite capital in, invite new uh, investors in that currently don't, necessarily have the need to invest in oil and gas and so when these uh, investment professionals uh, age starts to drop and they're less there's less dependency on needing to invest their portfolios into oil and gas uh, we have to be better and better managers i see this as a way to manage people's inventory uh, in a much more realistic way yes some people will be surprised on the downside others will be surprised on the upside of the value of these potential developments uh, into the future but overall, it brings us up to where we should be, which is responsible, educated, risk-adverse managers of a, you know, a wonderful planet that you know, we get to explore and develop these oil and gas resources on. So uh, i just, you know, like to say to all the other managers out there that uh, you know, it's really up to us to uh, take this industry by the horns and wrestle it in a direction that is positive that uh, allows it to continue for years and generations to come. There's no one-thing-fits-all solution to the situation we find ourselves in today. But I really think that there's a bright future for the industry, uh, there's a bright future for the SLU. Uh, and uh, I look forward to people participating, challenging uh, our ideas and concepts here that we've laid out, getting to know it, adding to it, being constructive. Uh, getting something to be successful in a space that desperately
0: needs it. I look forward to seeing it unfold as well and commend you and and your colleagues in the SLU Enterprise team uh, for what you're doing. It's very outside the box, very innovative. You know, the the episode we did with Stefan, the takeaway theme was there's there's no new ideas, just old ideas that are retraded. I think you guys are taking bits and pieces from different industries and different decades that have been successful and you're you're fitting them in here to the uniqueness of the Permian basin and i think uh, sky's the limit so um thank you for your time here eric again very very interesting stuff we'll we'll be in touch and you know i'm sure anyone who has any questions related to the land side of, of the slu they'll they'll know how to get in touch with you absolutely feel
1: free to reach out Always up for a conversation thanks again eric yeah.
0: hey guys thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast i hope you enjoyed the SLU Enterprise is striving to standardize, commoditize, and monetize oil and gas reserves in the Permian Basin. If you're interested in learning more about how your team can participate in the SLU Marketplace, then please email Joe Quireser, SVP of EMP Industry Affairs, at jqoieser at sluenterprise.com. Thanks and see you next time.